<laughs> you know? And he's like, I, I called because last time we talked, I got really mad at you, and I just want to let you know, I took your advice, and we're doing great. And he's like, this really helped my business. I was like, hey, good for you, man. I was like, man, I should have charged him for that, you know? <laughs> my goodness. I missed out. But uh, I think there's still... No, that's all right. That's all right. I'm busy enough as it is. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, let's see here. Brother Steve, would you pray for us tonight, brother? Amen. All right, Galatians chapter number 4. We, uh, we got down to, I believe, what verse 12 or 13 last week. Brethren, I beseech you, as, uh, uh, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preach the gospel unto you at the first. So again, uh, he has laid out the doctrinal argument against what is going on there. Uh, he's done it in a vehement fashion, and now he's beginning to appeal to uh, them on a heart-to-heart -heart basis. And he says in verse 11, I'm afraid of you lest I have bestowed uh, upon you labor in vain. He's, 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 he's starting to you know, pluck at their heartstrings a little bit. He's making more of an emotional um, argument to them, and he's saying, I, I, I beseech you, I beg you. Be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. He's trying to level with them. He's like, listen, man, there's no difference between me and you. And he says, you think you're hurting me? Uh, you're not hurting me. You're only hurting yourself by going down this road. You're going backwards. He's trying to say, you're going backwards here. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation was in my flesh, ye despised not. Uh, it says, and my temptation which was in my flesh, ye despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So what he's, he's showing you that the first time he goes and he preaches to these folks, that he, he obviously had been in some, some, he had some issues in the flesh while he was there. And it seems like that uh, when he came in, these folks, they, uh, they took him in and they, and they had some pity on him. And uh, they, they uh, felt, you know, they, they had a heart for Paul because they, they saw that he was preaching uh, while he was injured, while he was having problems in the flesh, yet he stands up there and he preaches. And so uh, what you find out is that when you, when you tend to go through things and, and hard times in your life happen and, and uh, stuff like that, when you choose to serve God through those things, it carries more weight to those that are watching, and to those that you're trying to minister to. Okay? Now this is, uh, this is something that I hope doesn't get lost in the day and age in which we live, but I'm sure it does in some cases, and that, and that is we think that serving Jesus Christ and, and ministering to people is a bed of roses with no thorns. That everything's going to be fine and we're all going to, you know, just have no issues in our life and healthy, wealthy, and wise, and and we'll just go ahead and give people this, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Phil type advice and we'll help you with your struggles and make you a better you and how to be a better dad and how to 
cope with stress and, you know, we'll just work on those kinds of things. Um, sorry, that's just not the way it works. What happens is, and one of the things that gives you power in the Christian life is that, you know, you, you kind of do what you're supposed to do even when it's not convenient to do it. So, I mean, you talk to, you hear like old interviews of like sports and, and athletes uh, and stuff like that, and they talk about the new age and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, they talk about guys that, I mean, they would play hurt, you know. I mean, you think about, uh, I, I just, I just thinking about one thing for an example, uh, you know, it's a kind of an, uh, it's kind of a, you know, historic game or whatever, but. You know, is it Michael Jordan hits a game winner or scores a bunch of points in the playoffs and he had the flu and, I mean, he could hardly get out of bed and a guy, like, rolls himself out on the court and uh, to this day the sports analysts look at that game and they say, look at the grit, look at the drive, look at the desire to win, look at the, you know, how much he cared about his team, look at, you know, how much he cared about winning and winning the trophy and he goes out there and they, and they call it the, his flu game. It's like an infamous thing. Well, what Christians need to realize is, guess what you do? Sometimes you got to play hurt. You know, sometimes you play hurt as a Christian. You know, sometimes there's things going on in your life and you come to church and what a lot of people do, and listen, we all fall victim to this sometimes because, you know, sometimes you just feel like you got to get things off your chest. But once you, as you start to mature as a Christian and people maybe look at you and they, and, you know, and you're trying to minister to people, what you find is you can't, you can't tell everybody all the stuff that's going on all the time. You've been around those people, you say, hey, how's it going? And that's like the worst question you could possibly ask them because they absolutely tell you everything that's going on. And you're like, oh, sorry I asked, you know. <laughs> and, and listen, and I'm not, to, and, and listen, this, the balance of this, the, the other side of this is, oh, well, you know, Make sure we don't tell anybody around here when we're having issues or problems. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that you get around folks sometime and they're always focused on the thing that's hurting them. And what they do, instead of ministering, the Bible says here, he says, You know how through the uh, infirmity uh, of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. He didn't go there and tell them how much his infirmity hurt. He didn't go there and tell him the story of how he got this infirmity and how long he's had it. And man, it's a real struggle. And man, we're just trying to get by. And we're just, you know what he did? He stood up and he preached the gospel. It was evident that he was hurt. People knew he was hurt. He didn't have to tell folks he was hurt. Sometimes as Christians, I mean, especially when you think about the places where you go to minister, uh, you realize that, you know, a lot of times when you come to church, you know, you come to church and you're here to get ministered to. You're here to minister to other people. Well, you know, when you go to work and you're around the lost people or you're around folks that don't, you know, uh, maybe believe like you do and that kind of thing, what does it look like when you go in and just complain about your life all the time? So what you find out is that, well, they have the same problems you do. But you also talk about your problems the same way. See, Paul... He goes in there and in spite of making, the, making the, the, the limelight on his problems and his infirmities, he puts the limelight on Jesus Christ and he puts the limelight on the gospel. Folks, Christianity, sometimes it's gritting and barren. Sometimes it's, you know, I mean, this hurts. 
And this situation stinks. And you want to know something? It's not always physical stuff. Paul, what we'll get in here in just a second here, it looks like Paul, he did have a physical thorn and a physical infirmity in his flesh that uh, it was a messenger of Satan, as he says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, or uh, uh, rather 2 Corinthians 12, I think. Um, he, he, he tells you that it's, it was there to buffet him, and it was there to humble him. But uh, not all the time is it something physical. You know, you live, you live in America, and, and you know what? You're, not, you're probably not going to have some of the same opportunities uh, to suffer like some of your brothers and sisters in Christ that live in other countries that aren't as blessed as you are. But you know what you find out pretty quick? That there's issues and there's problems in life that money in the bank and food in your belly don't solve. There's problems that are deeper than that, right? There's problems. That's why, that's why millionaires and billionaires and wealthy people still commit suicide at an alarming rate. That's why you realize that people in a first world country that have everything at their fingertips, we have people uh, more depressed and on antidepressants and medication to deal with their problems than ever before. Is because the wealth and the, and the sustainability of whatever your, your, your uh, status of life is, it doesn't fix all the problems that really hurt. And so sometimes you get yourself into an issue and you can't even talk about how it hurts. You know? And there's just burdens that you have. And you know what you have to do? The Lord will put somebody in your path or somebody will walk in here and they'll be going through something. And they'll maybe confide in you and they'll say, hey, man, I'm just going through this right now. And they're at a point of weakness. And you know what? You have a decision to make. You can say, yeah, man, I remember I went, I'm going through this too. And, man, I'm just, what did you just do? <laughs> right? Or, you know what you can do? A word fitly spoken in due season, how good is it? An encouraging word praying for you, you know. Uh, sometimes it's not about you relating with somebody's issues. It's about you um, ministering or telling somebody the gospel in spite of you being hurt. You, sometimes you got to play injured. You know what I'm saying? If uh, I had an old preacher one time, he said, listen, he said, uh, if you're called to preach, he says, and you can't preach hurt, then get out of the ministry. Oh, you mean you didn't have some like encouraging word and you're going to do great? <laughs> no. He said, listen, if you're called to preach and you're going to be in the ministry, you better learn how to preach hurt. And if you don't, get out of the ministry. Because you're just going to get up there and bellyache all the time. And the problem is, is your discontent for your situation is going to come out of your mouth and it's going to taint everything you say. And it'll be less about the people you're preaching to and less about the, the message in which you're supposed to preach and it's going to be majority about you. Everything's going to have that, that tinge to it, right? Because sometimes we get bitter about the situations and the thorns and the problems and the infirmities that we have in our life and we tend to focus on those more than the opportunity that those things are to really minister to people. Because somebody looks at that just like they did to Paul here in our text and they go, and that guy's going through that, and that guy's got some struggles, and you can tell that he's under pressure right now, and you can tell that he's in pain right now, and he's getting up there and he's preaching. My goodness, what a, what a man. 
He really believes what he's talking about. And the Lord puts his hand on that thing and he ministers to people through that in ways you can't even tell. I'll never forget one time I was up in Canton, Ohio and an old preacher up there means a very dear friend. Um, uh, he lost his wife a while ago. He's had to since retire from the church and give it over to uh, my buddy up there, uh, Brother Decker. And uh, uh, he's still in the church. He's, you know, 800 years old, but, you know, he's, I remember one of, uh, as he was on his way out, he, he had macular degeneration in one of his eyes, and, he, and the muscles in his, in his face, it, they would start twitching and be uncontrollable twitching and stuff, and on the pulpit, they had a big magnifying glass with a light on it so that he could read his Bible uh, when he was preaching and stuff, and I remember he got up there and he preached a message called, Where are the Nine? And... Man, I'll tell you, he, he, he had that light down in here and he was preaching and his face started going and he would, you could tell that he was preaching with everything he had and he would hold his eye down and his eye would start to water. Oh man, that eye would water as he's preaching. He'd hold his face down and he'd look through that magnifying glass and that light would be beaming up against his face and he'd be preaching and you could tell he's preaching with passion. I'll never forget that message. I sat there and I said, look at that old man preaching hurt because God wants him to preach and he's up there being faithful to what God called him to do and he's not and, and he's not even talking about all the stuff he could talk about his wife having dementia and his kids and and and, and all the stuff that was going on in his life and his health and everything he's just up there preaching holding his eye open so he could preach I watched Dr. Ruckman uh, towards uh, the end of his uh, time there, I got a, the last one of the last classes that got him in his full capacity, and um, you know I watched I watched that man preach in a, in a with a broken foot. I watched him come to class and, and weather you know bad rainstorms and all that things walking around and being in all kinds of pain. And then when he had the he had the macular degeneration when I was there, and I watched him just come in there and just be faithful and ministering and teaching us when he was sick and all kinds of things and problems were going on in his life. You think about all that stuff. Uh, you, you hear the story about him. He's at a meeting. This was way before I was ever around, but he was at a meeting and one of his wives mailed his wedding ring back to him in the mail. He gets, he's right about to get into the pulpit and the guy gives him a letter and it says his wedding ring. His wife's leaving him. He said, what did he do? He got in the pulpit and he preached. I want the power of God on me like it was on Dr. Ruckman. I bet you do. <laughs> you see that? Uh, it's one of those things, Paul, he learned how to play hurt. Okay, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preach the gospel unto you at the first. He says, and my temptation was in my flesh, ye despise not. Now, uh, this, this word temptation here, it's important that you understand that there's, there's two meanings to the word temptation. Uh, take your Bibles, uh, if you would, and, and go to uh, Hebrews chapter number 11. Hebrews chapter number 11. Paul says here that it was, it was his temptation. So what does that word temptation mean? We'll look here in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, look in verse number 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he uh, that he had received the promises uh, of uh, offered up his only begotten son. 
So he says that uh, when he was tried, he offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only son. So uh, the Bible says here that he was tried, and then uh, uh, compare this verse with Genesis chapter 22. Again, Scripture with Scripture, here a little, there a little. Because people say, okay, so was, was Paul being tempted to sin? You see that? Was that Paul's temptation? Was his temptation to sin there? And if that's the case, you find out that God is the one that put that thorn in his flesh, that infirmity in his flesh. Okay, then was God tempting Paul to sin? You see where that thing goes? Okay, look here in, uh, in, in chapter 22, look in verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. You see that? He's talking about uh, uh, his, taking Isaac up to the top of the mount. So in one spot, he says that he's being tempted. In the other spot, it says that he's being tried. Okay, take your Bibles, go to uh, James, the book of James, chapter number 1. The book of James, chapter number 1. Start in verse number 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. You see, this is what they call a a so-called error in the King James Bible. Paul is being tempted... But then you take it back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and you realize that God was the one that put the thorn there and God's the one that left the thorn there. So, is God tempting him? The Bible says here that God doesn't tempt any man. And then over there in uh, Genesis chapter 22, the Bible says that Abraham was tempted. But the clarification comes in Hebrews chapter 11 when he says that he was tried. Now let's see the other, let's see this dual application here. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Okay, so what we find out is that temptation is used in two senses. Temptation is used, first of all, uh, or, or, yeah, first of all, in the solicitation to do evil. can be used in that way. Or it can be a testing or a trial. That temptation can be a test or a trial. And so God will put you in a test, God will test you and God will try you And the Bible can use that word tempted, and it can mean that. Just because the Bible uses the word tempted doesn't mean it's necessarily tempted to do evil. So what are you trying to say? There's no contradiction. There's no contradiction. The Bible made it very plain and clear exactly what he he meant by that. If it's tempted to do evil, God's not going to tempt a man to do evil. You see that? The Bible says... Uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. God didn't tempt you. What tempted you? You were drawn away by your own lust, and you were enticed to do evil. 
And God says, I'll make a way for you to escape that. Okay? God didn't tempt you. Your lusts tempt you. There's an order of temptation. You write this down. We won't go too far into it. But this is the order of temptation. There's presentation. Then there's illumination. There's contemplation. Then there's decision. And then there's action. There's presentation. Something is presented to you. You see it, right? And then there's illumination. What is that? Is that right or wrong? Is that right or wrong? And then there's contemplation. Now that is where sin enters in. So look at what he says. Let every man that is tempted when he is drawn away from his own lust uh, and enticed... It says, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So in that list, in that, in that order of temptation, where does it become sin? You see that? Where does it become sin? Now this is a big deal because Jesus Christ, okay, the Bible says that we serve a high priest that was uh, tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. So can you be tempted and then be free from sin? Jesus was. So being tempted is not a sin. But where in the order of this does sin enter in? That's the question. So you have illumination. That is, okay, I have been presented with something. The Holy Spirit inside of me now illuminates, says, is this right or is it wrong? Okay, once the thing is illuminated, the moment you take it past illumination and you start the contemplation process or the debate, should I do it or should I not? The moment you debate it, sin enters in. Whatsoever not of faith is sin. The thought of foolishness, the Bible says, is sin. So you thinking... Maybe I should do that. That thought in your mind came in after you were presented with the opportunity, after you, it was illuminated to you, you knew it wasn't right. It was either right or it was wrong or you weren't sure. And the Bible says whatsoever not a faith is sin. So if you're not sure, if it's doubtful, I'd be reluctant, right? And maybe if you're not sure about something, yeah, you pray about it, that kind of thing. I'm not saying that every decision that you make is, is that quick to, you know, you understand. There's, there's things you pray about, so on and so forth. But for the most part, when it's talking about, you know, a sinful thing, that Holy Spirit has a pretty good job of saying, whoa, wait a minute. What are you doing there? Right? So that debate phase is when that sin enters in. Okay, so go back to our text here in Galatians chapter number 4. In Galatians chapter number 4, Paul says, My temptation, which was a trial, okay, which was in my flesh, ye despise not, nor rejected, but receive me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. Now that's a pretty, that's a pretty amazing statement as far as he tells you about the reception that these people gave him. Because what he says here, he says, 
that they received him as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. Now take your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 27. I'll show you something pretty neat here. Acts chapter 27. Anybody in their, in their Old Testament ever read the phrase, the angel of the Lord? The, now, there, there, there's a difference between, uh, uh, you know, an angel, uh, there's an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, okay? He's defined of who that is. That a lot of times when you read that in your Old Testament, what you're reading about is a pre-incarnate encounter of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, okay? And so look here with me, if you will, in uh, verse number 21, Acts chapter 27, verse number 21. But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and have not loosed from Crete and to have uh, gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, and look at, just in case you weren't exactly sure who the angel of God was, it says, whose I am and whom I serve. Well, who in the world does Paul belong to and who is he serving? There's no doubt. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, listen, man, I watched... Uh, I watched the way you guys received the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you received me just like you would have served, uh, received Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, he makes a big deal out of how people uh, receive the Lord Jesus Christ or receive the truth. Go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians verse number 9, verse, or chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So he's, he, he, he makes a point, he, makes a, he, he likes to accommodate or uh, acknowledge people rather, um, uh, of how they receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And to these folks at Galatians, he says, You remember I came in here, and I, had, and I was all messed up, and I was feeble and hunched over, and I couldn't barely see, and I was just, you know, just an old decrepit man, and weak in, 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 in bodily form, but not in, in knowledge or in his, in his speech, right? And he says, You received me as an angel of God, even Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. So again, he's taken them back to their first encounter with him. And now he, he's going to turn it back on their head in verse number 15. He says, Where is then the blessedness you spake of? We're so happy that you came. Oh my goodness, we've never heard preaching like that. My goodness, we never heard, we've never seen the power of God come through a pulpit like that. And thank you so much for showing us that we don't have to follow the law. And Jesus Christ came down and the gospel that God gave you, the dispensation of the grace of God. It's been wonderful and, and, and we're so blessed to have you here. It's probably sad to see him go. They're crying and everything else. And he says, where's the blessedness you spake of? Where did all that go? Where did it go? 
For I bear you record, I'm trying to bring it back to your mind here, I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Now that's a pretty extreme statement. He's saying, when I was here, you guys were hanging on every word that I said. God had so solidified uh, the message that I was preaching to you inside of your hearts that you saw my infirmity in my flesh and you were willing to pluck out your own eyes and give them to me if you could have. Now, now before we get into the plucking out of the eyes and the, and the significance of that, <coughs> it's funny uh, the way people react when you tell them the truth. Right? You ever think of it's kind of it's kind of weird how in the contemporary Christian or the ecumenical movement, um, you know, th this kind of movement that you know it's all about the people, the people, the people, the people, and let's make them happy. We want them to stay. We want them to. We want more people to come. We want more people to come. And so they they water down things and they don't say certain things and and uh, they try to appeal to the masses, right? And it's more of a it's more of a let's uh, we don't want to we don't want to divide with doctrine. So what we'll do is we won't preach anymore. What we'll do is we'll change preaching into an evangelistical approach on teaching. That's your modern churches. So it's no longer we don't preach the Bible anymore because the Bible can get pretty offensive. So what we'll do is we'll evangelistically teach topographical outlines. That make you a better you. Right? So Jim Lentz told a story about that. That's where I get that phrase from. He said he was talking to Harold Seitler one time. And he said, and uh, he was talking to Harold Seitler, and Harold Seitler said, he said, boy, he says, uh, he says, you better stick with preaching the gospel. He says, you better preach. And he says, because there's going to come a day is there going to come a day when they're going to change old-timey, old-fashioned preaching with evangelistical approach on teaching? That's what he told Jim once years and years ago. Well, guess what? That old man was right. The old man was right. And so when you go to these new churches now, we have a faith seminar. We have a faith seminar. We have focus on the family. How to cope with stress. Right? How to deal with your finances. What is all that? Well, they're using the Bible. They're, they're teaching the Bible. You see how they get you? It's a form of godliness, the Bible says, with no power. It's, in the Bible, it's godly, but is there power to it? I have a customer I, I've uh, done work for over the last couple of years. He is a uh, he is a professor in like uh, um, it's like uh, Japanese history or something like that. And um, he his son he actually he actually is like a liaison a business liaison with Japanese companies uh, big way big way way out there. Basically, he does the uh, mergers and acquisitions, and he does. Um, uh, contract negotiations with U.S. based companies doing business in Japan because the way that the Japanese, their mannerisms, the way they communicate, how they negotiate, it's all built into their culture. And so, and so that's, that's what he does. And, and, I, and I've done business with this gentleman at uh, his house 
And, uh, and he, we had got to talk, and he's a sweet old man. I mean, he's um, had a lot of health issues and that kind of thing. And every time I go to his house, he says, Joe, it's good to see you. Come inside and have a seat. And I'm there for an hour and a half. And uh, he has tons of books and everything. It's very well read and, and very smart. And he has all these commentaries on the Bible. And so we got to talking about the Bible one day. And we got to talking about preaching. And I, you know, was just talking to him about, you know, uh, he's, and he asked me a question that was peculiar. And, I, and, and he said, what style of preaching do you like? And I thought to myself, that's a, a unique question. I mean, what's the average intellectual know about styles of preaching? And I said, I, 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 said I, I'm, I, I tend to be an expository preacher. And I said, I believe expository preaching is the best kind of preaching uh, that you can have. And he, and he smiled, and he, and he says, expository preaching is a dead art, son. And uh, I don't, I, don't uh, I, I think he's, he's probably got some kind of uh, Methodist or something background, and he's in not great health. He, he can very, barely get around. The, he, they still, the, the universities that he works for, they still try to tap into his brain because he's very cognitive. He's, he's all there. But his wife's had several strokes, and so she can, has a hard time communicating, and they're kind of homebound. And, um, and uh, we sit there and talked, and, and I listened to that man talk about expository preaching, and you know what? That's an absolute truth. Expository preaching brings light onto a passage of Scripture that topographical preaching can't do. Now, is there a time and a place for topographical preaching? Sure there is. Um, but... You want to get into uh, you want to get into the, the the meat and potatoes of preaching. It's expository preaching, and so um, when when you do that type of preaching, the response that you get from the people in which you're preaching to, yeah, there will be some that get offended and get hurt, but the ones that can see the difference in the ecumenical, topographical, foo foo, make the better you type preaching. They appreciate being taught and preached the Word of God in a real manner. And, it, and, and, and so this is why um, uh, preachers and teachers and, and that kind of thing, you have, to keep your, you have to keep your ego and you have to keep all that junk out of it. Because how many disasters of churches have you seen when people, they cling on to the one that's preaching or the one that's teaching and they... And they, and they uh, idolize that person, and if and if you if you uh, exploit that relationship in any way, shape, or form, it is absolute chaos. The folks that mentored me and the folks that have taught me how to preach, they say the most dangerous thing is for a, a preacher to to not understand the transaction that takes place between a pulpit and the people that they're preaching to. What takes place? Okay, you open up a Bible and you have the calling on you to, to expound the scriptures in preaching or teaching form. And what happens is, is that you earn the respect of the people that you preach to or teach to and they open up their heart and they open up their mind. And a transaction takes place. And that for a moment that heart opens up and that mind opens up and the Holy Spirit allows you to put something in there. An embryo, a seed. Whatever it may be. And then it closes back up and then it begins to fester and begins to grow and hopefully bears fruit someday. If you exploit that transaction, 
catastrophe happens. Because now you have led someone astray. Now you have manipulated. Now you have, for your own benefit, exploited somebody else via the Word of God. So, preachers that mess up and preachers that exploit that and, and make a mess of their people, uh, they should be held at a higher account than most because the bar is, he said, extremely high. But what Paul's showing here is that he says, when I preach to you people, you would have plucked out your own eyes for me. Most preachers that are in this, you know, they want to appeal to your emotions and appeal to your, your carnality more than they want to appeal to the truth. You know what they are after? They're after your money, one. And they're so insecure, they want your loyalty. They want you to like them. They want to be a celebrity. Paul's going to, tell you, Paul's going to show you in the next verse, he has no care about that at all. He's just making an observation. And so it's like, People's like, oh, well, you know, how do I get, how do I get fo uh, church folks to show up and, 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 and be a part of the church and get involved in the church? People know when it's, when it's just a transaction. People can tell the difference when it's the truth and when it's you just blowing smoke to try to have some other ulterior motive. If someone's here for the truth and you give them the truth and you preach to them the truth, what they're willing to do, they're, they're saying, if I could do whatever. And Paul says, I don't need you to pluck your eyes out for me. There's nothing you can do to help me. You know what you can do? You can live for Jesus Christ. You can take that desire that you have to help me. And why don't you take that desire, you turn that desire, and you serve Jesus Christ with that desire. What he did was he always had the right balance. It was never about him. It was about them and God getting to them and working out their, and exercising their salvation uh, with them. Now look at what he says. He gives you clarity about his motives. Okay, in verse number 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? He's saying, well, you gotta, I'm, not worried, I'm not worried about you liking me. I'm worried about you hearing the truth and accepting and living by the truth. Whether you like me is immaterial. You see that? Go to uh, 2 Timothy, chapter number 4. I charge you, therefore, before God, Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. If people like you, it's immaterial. You know what you find out when you tell people the truth? It isn't just for preachers, folks, okay? You know what you find out? You tell people the truth. How they respond to you, it, it ebbs and flows. There are seasons that they like you, and then there are seasons that they don't like you. People are fickle like that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? People are fickle. And uh, it's difficult 
Go to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians, we'll be back here in just a second, but I want to finish this thought here. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, look in verse number 15. Paul shows you his heart in these verses. He says, where's the blessedness you spake of? Where is it? Verse number 15, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. How do you judge whether or not somebody loves you? Well, it's how many gifts they give me. No, 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 no. The Bible says, oh, it's how many compliments they give me. It's how, it's how pretty they tell me I am. It's how wonderful of a job I'm doing. You see that? That's how I tell if somebody loves me. But the Bible says if someone's spoiling you with flatteries, the Bible says that they're setting a net for your feet. A flattering tongue. You watch out for that kind of thing. How do you know if somebody loves you? They tell you the truth. They lie to you. Right? Honey, does this make me look fat? <clears throat> do you love her? <laughs> you know what you do? You say nothing. That, that is a dress right there. <laughs> that is great. Yes. Yes. Those are situational ethics, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I had to, it was getting too heavy in here. I had to break it up with some levity, uh, right? But uh, he says, the more I love you, though the less I be loved. This is not a popularity contest. The Bible says, if, you know how you know you have a good friend? is when the iron sharpens the iron, right? That, take, that, that, that makes friction. You ever rub two pieces of metal together for a long time at a high rate of speed? And then touch it, it gets hot. Some of, some of the friends that I appreciate the most that I have, you know what they do sometimes? They call me out. Say, so, you know, you just need to suck it up. You know? I think maybe you're reading into that just a little bit too much. I think you need to let that go. Right? I had a guy, I've told this story before, I had a guy that... Pensacola, man. Man, I hated his guts sometimes. <laughs> he, 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 would, he would tell me something I didn't want to hear. You know, he, he, man, he'd tell me I was wearing something stupid. I was listening to the wrong kind of music or something like that. I didn't know nothing. I'd just come out of the world, you know. I was listening to Diamond Rio and <laughs> listening to Casting Crowns and all this different garbage. And uh, they're making fun of, they'd make fun of me, ruthlessly make fun of me. Oh, my goodness. Ruthlessly make fun of me. And uh, I'd get mad, man. I'd get so mad. And um, I remember this guy, I'd go home and I'd say, Lord, I'm going to prove this idiot wrong. And I'd get in my Bible and the Lord tell me, you're wrong. And I'm like, man, but I hate him. He called me stupid. He called me an idiot, right? And then one time he says, oh, you think you're so smart? He says, where's Josiah's in the Bible? And I was like, how do I know? <laughs> you know? And you know what it made me do? I went back to my house that night and I figured out where Josiah's story was in the Bible. 
You see what I'm saying? It may not made me so mad, but you know what those guys did? They, they helped me, right? They helped me. Sometimes, listen, the, the sermon that you need isn't the sermon that you want. And he says, am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You better be careful about holding bitterness towards somebody that says something to you that's true, but you don't like the way they said it. Does that make sense? Because sometimes the Lord, what He'll do is He'll give you the exact truth that you need, and He'll wrap it in a way you don't like, so you have to humble your flesh in order to accept the truth He gave you. And He'll never let you get over until you accept the truth He gave you in the form that He gave it to you. The Lord wants to take off your hard edges. Sometimes the Lord gives you the truth through somebody that's just like 60 grit sandpaper. You know what He's trying to do? He's trying to knock off your rough edges. He's trying to get you to have a little bit more grace. He's trying to get you to be a little less sensitive. Right? He's trying to help you. And sometimes the truth, it stings a little bit. It's like putting alcohol or peroxide or something on an open cut. Man, it burns for a second. But you know what? It cleans that thing out and it heals a whole lot better. Right? But it hurts. And sometimes we just start to demonize the folks that tell us the truth because we don't like the way they said it or we don't like the truth in which they give. And so you distance yourself from that person and you don't try to affiliate with yourself with that person anymore. And the, and the Lord, He will not deal with you any further past that point right there. That'll be where you're stuck. And so you've got to be careful about that. Uh, we'll take one more thought here. He says here that you would have plucked out your own eyes and had given them to me. Okay, look in Acts chapter number 9. This is Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. And it looks like here that uh, Paul is given a thorn in the flesh and he has an infirmity in the flesh. And one of the problems that he's having here is that he's got eye trouble. Okay, he's, it seems like he says in, in Galatians, he says, You see how big a letter I've written unto you, but it's actually one of his shorter epistles. And so what it alludes to is probably, and he says that this is an epistle that he wrote with his own hand. And so what it looks like, he probably has enough eye trouble that the font in which he's writing it is very large so that he can see it. And so, and, and this is why this letter is so personal. This is why the, the tone of the letter is so personal because these were people he had invested in. These were people that uh, had received him and they had, a, they had a, a, a bond and a connection through the preaching and through his infirmity and through all the things that transpired uh, in the meeting in which they had. And so he takes the time, even with his eyes the way they are, and he writes this letter out by hand to them, not through anybody else. Look here in Acts chapter number 9. Uh, look in verse uh, number 8. And Saul arose from the earth. This is after he gets knocked down on the road to Damascus. And when, his eyes, it says, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did eat, uh, did, uh, eat nor drink. So a part of his conversion there, he gets knocked down and he gets blinded. And so... Uh, they say, you know, there's no doubt that there were some issues the Lord uh, dealt with him in his eyesight there. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number uh, 12. So we're just going to go back to there, but 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. Look with me in uh, 
see verse number 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And he says, Therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And so he's alluding that he is given a thorn in the flesh. And, um, but there's one more cross-reference I'd like to, uh, to, to show you in the book of Joshua, chapter 23. The book of Joshua, chapter number 23. So some people say, uh, in which I believe it was his eyes that were that were uh, that were not great, but some people say it was the uh, it was the enemies that God uh, put in his life because there was no shortage of them. People try to kill Paul and take kind of oaths and stuff that they weren't going to eat and stuff like that before Paul was dead and all that kind of thing. And he met all kinds of persecutions and necessities, just like he said over there. And it could be a mixture of both. Uh, but in Joshua chapter number twenty three. Uh, look in verse number 13. Know for certainly, or certainty, that the uh, Lord our God, uh, your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off the good land which the Lord your God hath given you. Okay, so these were, these were enemies that were left in the land, and the Bible calls them thorns in the eyes. And, and so, you know, those are the cross-references that are given. But it's most likely what he's talking about here is the fact that he has a hard time seeing. And that was probably something he struggled with as he was preaching to these people. And they saw how, of a, how much of a hard time he was having. And they, and they said that, man, they would have plucked out their own eyes to give them to Paul. Uh, for the sake of him being able to, to teach and preach better than what he was doing. And so, <coughs> um, we'll go ahead and stop there for tonight, and we'll let you guys have a five-minute break before Pastor comes. But uh, anybody have any questions about some of the stuff we went over?